you have a Bible with you, how about if you open up to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're new to New Hope, we've been in the book of Hebrews for a few weeks and probably be in it for a few more. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to pick up at verse 14. In order to do what we're going to do this morning, um, we have to recognize not only that God's Word does things, but God's Word, when it speaks to us, causes us to respond in certain ways. And, uh, let me explain that. You just sang, Spirit, take me to a place without borders. God hears that, okay? God hears you communicating to Him that you're asking Him to do something in your life. That's a really dangerous song because most of us are not willing to go to that place where there's no borders. We're not willing to step into the water and the chance that we're going to sink. That song was kind of based on Peter stepping out of the boat when Jesus said, walk on the water to me, Peter. That concept of stepping into a place without borders is the kind of thing that God's Word does in your life if you really open yourself up to it. I believe what you're going to hear this morning, you're going to find incredibly encouraging in your life. That God wants to, with you, take you to places you've never been before. And you're going to find this encouragement coming out of this passage of Hebrews 4.14 in such a way that God may cause you as a result of what you're hearing this morning to do things. Because His Word is alive and active and sharp. So in order to get there, I need to do two things with you. I first need to give you a 30,000-foot view from what we talked about last week to help us step back into this. But before we do that, I need to pray with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to the point in our time together this morning in which we're going to study Your Word, and we would ask that You would speak through the power of Your Holy Spirit. We know that Your Word speaks and that it's alive. But the way, Father, that You connect it for us is through Your Holy Spirit who's active and present in our life. And so I ask for the sake of Your church that You would not only brood over this auditorium as we know You're doing right now, but that You would give application to Your Word directly to our heart and that we would be willing to respond as, as a result of it. God, we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 30,000 foot view, big picture. When, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and Adam sinned, he fell. Now, we know that language. If you grew up in church, you're familiar with that concept of fallen man. So what did he fall from? Well, he fell from this place of communion with God, this place of intimate relationship. So in chapter 1 and 2, you see God, man, interacting, and Adam actually walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam sins, and he's no longer walking with God in the garden. He's hiding from God. And as we talked about last week, it's not such a good idea to play hide-and-seek with God, is it? You just can't win, because God sees everything. So God knew where Adam was at. Adam disobeyed. As a result, he became separated from God. So the first result, the first effect of the fall is that his spirit no longer functioned in the presence of God in the way that it had previously. He was separated. Fast forward, time of Moses, part of the 30,000 foot view. 
Moses is told by God, Moses, I'm going to use you if you are willing. I'm going to use you to take my people whom I've chosen to myself, the people of Israel, to draw them out of Egypt, out of bondage, into the wilderness, and there I'm going to reveal some things to you. So God chose Israel as an example of what He can do in the world through this one nation as an example to the whole world of who God is. Moses listens. Moses obeys and he takes the people out of Egypt, leads them out of bondage into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God says, I'm going to reestablish what man lost back in the garden. And God institutes something known as the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. You can read about this later today yourself in the book of Leviticus. I'm I'm not going to get into it this morning. But especially Leviticus 16 talks about the establishment of a priest. Next week, we're going to really dig deep into the sacrificial system to understand that better. But today, I want you to understand the priest and the role of the priesthood and why God said this is important. So we've got the priesthood established. Man's going to have this opportunity to reconnect with God through this high priest. And we're reminded that this writer of Hebrews, throughout these last 10 weeks that we've been looking at this, has been using the same language. He's reaching back into the Old Testament, pulling out bits and pieces of this concept of the priest. Let me remind you, look with me on the screen. Chapter 1, Jesus is seen as the one who made the purification of sins. That's what the priest did, the the one who was the mediator. Chapter 2, he's a merciful and faithful high priest from verse 17. Chapter 3, he's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And then this morning, chapter 4, you're going to see he's our great high priest. So this word priest is used repeatedly over and over again. Why? Because this writer of Hebrews is writing to people from an Israelite background, and he's reaching back into what's familiar to them, saying, what you know today has its roots in the ancient past. He's using language that they'll understand. Now, if the concept of priest is very foreign to you, you probably didn't grow up in a church, if you did grow up in church, in which there was a priest in place. Well, part of what we're looking at this morning is to help you understand what the role of the priest was. So go forward with me to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. We'll pick up where we left off last week. It says this, Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Do you notice that it says we have? Who's the we, church? Us, yeah. He's he's yours. You have a great high priest. Have you never had a priest in your life? This is your priest. You have a priest. Can you say that with me? He's mine. So let's not say it on three. One, two, three. He's mine. So there's something about saying that out loud. He's yours. He is your great high priest. I love the word great in the Greek language. It's my favorite word. It's the word megas. I've said it many times. I'll probably say it till the day I die. Maybe they'll carve it on my tombstone. Megas means exceedingly great, high, powerful, mighty. You put whatever synonyms you want to in there. That's who Jesus is. He's your megas high priest. Why is that so significant? Because that tells us that our high priest has power and he has authority to get things done. Now that's very important where we're going in Hebrews chapter 4 that we understand our high priest has this megas capacity to do things. Now in ancient Israel, the priest was appointed by God. Aaron was the first high priest and he was appointed by God to do one specific thing, 
to be the mediator between man and God, to do things on behalf of man before God. He would come into the temple to do things for man before God. Now, here's why that's significant. Common people, the workaday Israelite was not allowed to do certain things in the temple and certainly not allowed to go certain places. So common people have boundaries and borderlines. When they entered the temple, they had to stop at certain doors. They were not allowed to go to the other side of the door. Common priests even had borders and boundaries. Their feet could not go beyond certain doors. Only the high priest, the chief priest, could step beyond all the thresholds into the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, behind the veil. Only on one day. The day is known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. The day in which the high priest would go into a place that no one else could go into. Now, to help you understand this picture, let's come from the 30,000-foot level down to planet Earth and get this picture. Historians tell us that the temple itself, the area of the courtyard, was so massive, 37 acres, that you could put as many as 200,000 people in the courtyard. Now, that didn't account for the entire nation of Israel. The entire nation of Israel was in the millions, so many people stood outside the walls on the Day of Atonement wanting to get inside. Only the lucky ones got inside to the platform area to see the courtyard and see the high priest do what he does. We're told that when the temple was built, it took 18,000 employees to build that thing, according to historians. Over 2 million stones. We still today don't know how they moved the stones in place, but what we do know is that the people of God understood that this was such a high and holy place that they didn't even want to hear the sound of chisels in the city of Jerusalem. So they quarried the stones a distance away, about five miles away. And we're talking rocks that were 10 foot by 10 foot by 80 feet long, which are still there today as part of the foundation of the temple. And those were moved into place. Somehow, we don't know, We don't have machines big enough today to move rocks that size, but yet the people insisted and the king insisted, we will not hear the sound of chisels in the presence of our God in this holy place. So you have this mammoth, enormous, gargantuan, have I used enough synonyms? Assembly place where this high and holy priest would carry out a sacrifice. Now, if this guy, this one man who is one individual is going to be your priest and he's going to go into the presence of God on your behalf, you want to know that that guy's got his act together, don't you? You want to know that he's got everything in order. Well, They had processes by which they would make sure the high priest had his act together because this guy had to be power washed, sanctified because he was going into the presence of God and standing before the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know they actually had holy underwear for him to wear? Holy underwear, holy garments, this pure vest covered with jewels that God prescribed all the way back in the book of Leviticus that he would wear, and a crown that he put on his head. And it was quite a spectacle to see. So before the high priest could ever enter the Holy of Holies, he had to do things for himself because he was a sinner and his family had sin in their life. So we see in Leviticus 16, this is the only verse I'm going to share with you from there, it says this, Aaron, who was the high priest at that time, is to offer 
the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Well, the only reason you would make atonement is if you had sin in your life. The only reason you'd make a sin offering is if you had sin in your life. So the series of process to make sure this guy is sanctified. Now, a, a primordial source, an ancient source left behind a letter that archaeologists uncovered years ago that gave us an insight into what it looked like if you were an observer to look at the high priest at that period of time. I don't know the source, but I just wanted to share the quote with you. This is what it says. It was an occasion of great amazement when we saw Eliezer, who was the high priest at that time, engaged in his ministry in all the glorious vestments, including the wearing of the garment with precious stones upon it, in which he is vested. There the priest appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near the spectacle of what I have described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words. So as no other human instrument could, the priest represented God before the people and represented the people before God. And so this is an incredibly sacred, profound powerful moment God's going to meet with his people and so it's very very quiet and very very somber because it doesn't get any more serious than this see people carried their baggage for an entire year whatever sin they committed on a daily basis and it was strapped to them like a, a weight on their shoulder and they dragged it the consciousness aware that that sin has not been removed. They tried to make offerings, but they were aware it really took the Day of Atonement. It took the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of an animal on the mercy seat for them to get a brand new beginning. And they'd get a whole new year in front of them. So this is a really serious moment in which the high priest would bring symbolically all the sins of the people before God into the Holy of Holies looking for God's mercy. And the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now know this, the the time in the Holy of Holies, the time in which the priest would be able to be allowed to be in there was extremely limited. All he could do was pass through the veil, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and leave. You'll find no chair in the Holy of Holies. Man was not allowed to sit down and enjoy the presence of God. He had to go in there, do his thing, and leave. There's no delay. As soon as the sacrifice is made, he left, and he didn't come back for another year. So that meant you got a brand new beginning, and everybody outside, the hundreds of thousands and the millions outside the wall, would be celebrating. The high priest has come back out of the temple. Our sins have been atoned for. And there's cheering, and there's celebration. Because there had been ten days of mourning leaning up to this. God had prescribed that the people would fast and grieve for 10 days, recognizing what they had done over the past year and how it had separated them from God. But God put the priest in place to reestablish the connection. So here's the complication. Every year, year after year after year, 10 becomes 20, 20 becomes 100, 100 becomes 1,000. On and on and on. Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. See, the priest was not perfect. 
the sacrifices were not perfect, so the process never ended. The sins were never taken away. They were merely covered over with the blood of the animal. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. Feel the weight in that statement? They're constantly reminded of their sin. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It only atoned for it. and In other words, it covered it over, but it didn't take it away and remove it. It was an imperfect system. Now, in order to enter the holy place, the high priest had to do this. Some of you um, may consider yourself theologians, and perhaps you already know this, but the high priest had to enter through three stages to get to the Holy of Holies. Because the sacrifice was always made outside in the courtyard. And when the animal had been sacrificed, the priest would pick up the bowl, the bowl that had the blood in it and would make his way through the first door of the outer court into the next level of the court. So he passed through one stage, and then he would enter the temple door, which would cause him to have to enter through another door where everyone else, all people had to stay out except for the priest. And then only the high priest could pass through the next door, which was the veil, which was 12 inches thick. And this is the place where the high priest found the Ark of the Covenant. Well, you see this writer in Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 14, telling us that Jesus, our high priest, this megas one, passed through the heavens. Do you notice that it's plural? Well, it's not by accident. It's heavens for a reason. Because in the Jewish mind, in the biblical world, there's always three stages to the heavens. The first heaven is this one that surrounds us, the atmosphere in which we live in. The second stage is outer space. That's known as the second heaven. The third stage is the place of God where God dwells. Paul writes about that with that very familiar language in Corinthians when he talks about his own experience being caught up into the presence of God. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12.2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. What's he referring to? The place of God. So Jesus went into the most holy place. He passed through the heavens. Jesus went to where God dwells. What happened when he arrived there? Look with me at Hebrews 9.12. We're told this, He had made the perfect atonement for sin, the purpose for which he had come to earth, and the work was completed when he entered the heaven and presented himself in the holy place. See, the most holy of holies, the place where God, the mercy seat, dwells. The holy of holies. So what happened when Jesus arrived there? I want you to know that Jesus alone could make that sacrifice because he's the perfect priest. And so because he's the perfect priest who made the perfect sacrifice, Jesus did not have to leave the presence of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus sat down for all eternity. Why? Because there was a chair waiting for him there. It was the one he returned to. It was his throne. So we're told this according to Hebrews also. Hebrews 1.3. This should be familiar from 10 weeks ago. We looked at this. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Do you see the imagery now? That the, that the Hebrews are receiving this and they're beginning to understand. This megas high priest is the one who's passed through all the stages into the holy of holies. This one is to be revered. He passed through the heavens, and when he arrived, he sat down. Church, can I get a witness? That's an amen. Because there's no reason for him to leave. He's the perfect high priest who made the perfect sacrifice. 
Do you notice in verse 14 before we move on to 15 that he uses this double title, the composition of the name Jesus, Son of God. Now, we don't get introduced to our friends as Mark, son of Richard. We just don't do that. Why did this writer do it this way? Well, he's using this composition of Yahashua with Son of God. Jesus is who he became. God is who he's always been. And so we see this two-part of his nature reflected in verse 15. Jesus reflected in his humanity, Son of God recognized in his deity. So he says, as a result of all this, this megas high priest, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Why is he saying that? Well, the Hebrews who are receiving this, they're tempted to bail on what they know to be true, to go back to Judaism. He's saying, hold fast to your confession. I know that Rome is throwing you into the Colosseum. I know your friends are being murdered for the faith. Don't bail. This is your basis to hold firm. There is no greater high priest than this one. That kind of returning to Judaism would be saying, Jesus doesn't have the capacity to protect me. He doesn't have the capacity to do for me what I thought he did, so I'm returning to Judaism. That's why he's saying, hold fast to your confession. That's a great setup for verse 15. Let's go to that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the truth. Most people believe and think of God as being far removed, especially at this period of time. In the Jewish mind, God is this distant entity Agnostics believe that there is a God, but that He's unknowable, that that's prevalent today. The truth of Scripture is God the Son became Jesus for a specific reason, to share in the temptation and the suffering that you and I experience every day. So it says, in order that He might be an understanding high priest. So He's not unable to sympathize, He's able to sympathize. So here's what you should know this morning. When you're troubled... You're discouraged. Even when you're ticked off, Jesus has been there. He knows what you feel. He has felt what you feel. Some of you feel like you need a support group. Jesus is your support group. He's been there. He's known it all. And he has an unequal capacity for sympathizing with us because he's been through it all. That's why we're told in verse 15, one who in every respect, let me break that down for you, in his human form, He saw his good friend Lazarus in a tomb. And the Bible says that before he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, before he said, Lazarus, come forth, the Bible tells us that he bodily shook with grief. His body was seized physically with these convulsion-type actions that most people experience at death when they lose a dear loved one. Jesus felt that. We're told in the garden when he was arrested, the night before the crucifixion, that Jesus was sweating great drops of blood. What does that tell you? Anxiety. Because the next statement, Father, I know what's coming. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But also as God very aware of what God was about to do and saying, nevertheless, not my will, but to let your will be done. You see humanness coming out in everything that he did. So we know he's walked where we walked. He's experienced what we experienced. And he's experienced every kind of temptation that you've ever faced. 
I want to help you understand that because some people would say, well, he didn't live in 2014 and I'm experiencing things today. There's no way he could have experienced. I'm going to tell you he faced what you faced and more. And I want you to understand how so. Because not only did he have all the feelings of love and concern and disappointment and grief, he has a much greater understanding of love, disappointment, and grief because he has a perfect grasp of everything. And so he knows the height of love and he knows the depth of evil. And he's seen it face to face in ways that you and I never will. So contrary to what you might think, his godness, if I can use the word that way, his godness made the temptations that he faced immeasurably harder to endure than the ones that you and I face. I'll illustrate it this way. We all experience pain to some degree or another when we're injured. Some of us have a higher threshold of pain. My wife has a much higher threshold of pain than I do. I watched at childbirth what she endured, and there's no way I can endure that. So she has a higher threshold of pain, but we all have a breaking point. Some people will scream at the feeling of severe pain. Some will experience numbness at the sight of the wound. Others will go into shock. Some people experience pain so severely it can cause them to black out and to faint. Well, if we translate that same thought over to Jesus, He had the capacity to endure temptation without limitation. There was no off switch because He had no weakness limit. There was no way he could turn off the temptation at a certain point. So he experienced temptation to the maximum, yet he experienced it as a man, as a human being. So he took the full force of what Satan brought against him. Yet verse 15 says, without sin. So the fact is, Jesus was without sin. This is what it means. He knew sin in a way that I will never know sin. He knew it to a depth to which I can never know. Here's why. Fallen man falls far sooner than what Jesus would ever possibly fall because he knew no sin. So Satan brings out the whole arsenal against Jesus. We've never seen the whole arsenal. God knows that you and I have limits. He knows there's only a certain point that you can endure and then you're going to collapse. So for a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an out. According to the authority of Scripture, God knows what your limitations are and He will not allow you to be pushed beyond that point. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but as such is common to man. That means we all experience it. But it says this, And God, who is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God's Word can't lie, right church? Can't lie. So God's telling me, if I fail, if I have a temptation and I succumb to it, it's on me. It's not on God. Because God provides a way out. It was a failure on my part to come before Him and say, Father, I'm really enduring temptation here. Would you remove it from me? But in Jesus' case, He's tempted far beyond anything that we could ever know. That's why Satan unloaded the cart on Him. We're told that He came and took Jesus to a high place. He said, you see the kingdoms of the world? They'll all be yours if you will bow down before me. I've never fasted for 40 days. Jesus fasted for 40 days. And in that moment, Satan appeared and said, you're the son of God. You have the ability to take stones and make it into bread. I know you're hungry. Prove to me that you're the son of God. I've never been taken to a high peak and be told, jump off. The word of God says that 
His angels will bear you up on their wings before you ever hit the ground. Go ahead and jump, Jesus. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. See, Jesus endured temptation to a degree and a level that you'll never know. And I will never know because we would cave in far, far earlier than that. Jesus never caved. That's why Scripture says Satan went away. Except for a more opportune time, he was going to come back. Scripture says no one was tempted as he was because it tells us he was tempted in all things just as we are. It's true. But we'll never know the level of temptation that he knew. So, verse 15 He's been tempted as we are. That should tell you that he understands. Now for me in 2014, a follower of Jesus Christ since I was 14 years of age, I have this ingrained into my fabric of thinking that God understands. I've heard it in church my entire life. It's woven deep into the very fabric of who I am. But know this, this was amazing to the Jews in the first century. Because their concept was a God who was far and distant removed. He's the one behind the veil. The unapproachable one that I can never go before. The place where the Ark of the Covenant dwells. He's distant. And so he can't possibly experience the things that I experience. He's not interested in those things. So this was new revelation to the core of who they very are. The very core of who they are. The basic idea of God for them was that he's holy. He's omnipotent. He's pure. But to know humans, to be like us. Now into that same world, the thinking of the Greeks at that period of time was that to have feeling and emotion meant other people could manipulate you. So the Stoics, especially in the Greek world, believed that if you showed emotion, that meant other people could control the outcome. So therefore they believed God was separate from emotions There's no way, because God couldn't be controlled, therefore God had no feelings. The Romans believed that God was primarily apathetic. He just didn't care. Into that world, Christianity brought this incredible understanding of this one who deliberately took on everything that you and I experience. It is almost impossible to get our mind around how a first century person is thinking when they receive this, that this megas high priest became like us. Yet he knew no sin. That's what he says in verse 15. It's without sin. See, facing sin head on qualifies him. That's what qualifies him. And he wanted us to know. 50 years ago, C.S. Lewis, he knew that people would counter this position in Scripture. C.S. Lewis said that there's going to be people who are going to come along who are going to say, well, Jesus couldn't possibly have known what sin is then. He couldn't possibly have been tempted or he would have given in long before. Well, C.S. Lewis put together this, this brilliant answer to it. I want you to see his quote. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into the temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. See, Jesus understands better than anyone. He's seen sin more clearly and fought it more diligently than any of us. So his sinlessness, I know that's not a word, so don't correct me later, but his sinlessness alone can properly evaluate sin. 
This is the way John Piper said it. Jesus knows the battle. He fought it all the way to the end, and he defeated the monster every time. He does not roll his eyes at your pain or cluck his tongue at your struggle with sin, so hold fast to your hope and draw near to God. Jesus knows your condition, and it's not just something he heard about. He's personally experienced it. That's a great setup for our last verse, verse 16. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who's the us, church? The us is us, isn't it? The us is us. The us is the we in verse 14. We have a megas high priest. The us is us. It's the believers in Jesus. Let us then draw near with confidence. See, the word us, it tells us something. It tells us that the priesthood was done away with. We're going to get into that next week. But when we're told, let us, that means we can all come near to God with confidence. Now, this is going to sound really redundant, but I want you to hear me on this, kind of the capstone of where we're going. I can be confident before God. You 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 getting tired of hearing that yet? You you can be confident before God. Why is he emphasizing this? That we can be confident. Why Why is he emphasizing this approach like a priest coming before God? I'm going to state the obvious. Because we don't, church, myself included, we don't. We carry the thought that we've got all this baggage on us. So we don't come confidently. We come with the thought that we've made these mistakes. So we don't come confidently. We come with baggage when God's Word says otherwise. I've come up with a couple things that I want you to take as two points out of this this morning. The first one has to do with why we hesitate, that I'm going to state in a positive way. The second one has to do with why we hesitate in a negative way. In a positive way, you can approach Him because He's made the perfect sacrifice, because He's passed through the heavens. Because he sits at the right hand of majesty on high. And he says, I'm your megas, high priest. I am your mediator between you and God. Come to me. That's the positive side. Here's the negative side. Many of us hesitate because we believe he's not that interested. He's not that interested in my breakup. He's not that interested in my job situation. I don't think he's really that interested in what's going on with my kids. I don't know that he's really that interested in what's going on with my tests this week at school. I don't know that he's really that interested in that bully that keeps beating me up in the hallway. I just don't know that he's that interested. There's that thought. That's part A. Here's the more predominant thought. Part B. Many people hesitate and don't come confidently before God because they're convinced that God's going to rub their noses in their past failures. Can you identify with that? 
Why is that? Because we have all had friends in our life or family members whom we've confided in. And in a time of really difficult struggle, we asked them for help. And instead of really helping, they belittled us. They rubbed our noses in our mistake. And they took a vulnerable situation and used it to their own advantage and crushed us. And we tend to translate how we view humans into how we view God. God says, that's not who I am. I sit on a throne. And I want you to look very closely at verse 16, church, because there's something specific about this throne that your God sits on. Peek behind the veil. Look at the nature of your God and cast your eyes on his throne. What does he sit on, church? The throne of what? Grace. He sits on the throne of grace. That's what this writer wanted us to understand. You can come confidently before this one and you're going to receive mercy and you're going to find grace. Now, the Bible speaks much of God's justice and so it should. How horrific for us, though, if we only read of just his justice and not also his graciousness. Now, this is the problem with most individuals. They see God as either 100% just and maybe 40% gracious or 100% gracious and maybe 40% just. See, God's 100% both, or he's not God. He's complete in everything. So he's 100% gracious. He's 100% just. So God gives us the help minus the humiliation. Somebody here needed to hear that this morning. God gives you the help minus the humiliation. How do I know that? That's his nature. It's also said in Scripture, if we come before him, he's not going to give us things with reproach. James 1.5, here's an example for you. But if any of you lacks wisdom, this is just an example from wisdom, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. He's not rubbing your nose in it saying, you stupid idiot, what do you need wisdom for again? You, you want forgiveness again? You want my love again? That's not your God. Come to the throne of grace. I give things without reproach. So this one who understands you perfectly, who's been every place you've been, is providing for you perfectly. And here's the cool thing. He's always available. Problem for the ancient Israelite? They couldn't go and have coffee with the high priest. He was unapproachable. And they certainly couldn't run into the Holy of Holies to talk to God. God was distant. The, the high, powerful rulers at that time, they were unapproachable. So the common people, they had no breaks. So when the Israelite was tempted, what did he do? He just carried the baggage with him. But as followers of Jesus, we get to run to our megas, high priest, anytime. So the truth of Scripture is this. Any person... No matter how undeserving you feel this morning, no matter how much you feel you've messed up, you're going to be received with mercy and grace. That's the truth of God's word. So through Jesus, and I love this word, our, our megas high priest, the throne of judgment 
is in reality a throne of grace. Wow. You see how revolutionary this would be for the people receiving this letter? To understand that God receives them that way knows we know that He receives us the same way. Because God doesn't change. So for you this morning, when you leave, here's my thought for you. When your life is drenched in sweat and in tears, you come before God who's been there. He knows exactly what you're feeling. He's walked where you walked. And yet he's full of mercy and compassion and grace. And he gives it freely. So the confession that you and I were exhorted to pay attention to back in verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession, is just really, really simple. It's this unshakable hope that many people seem to forget. God is for you. He really is. God loves you. God is for you. Write down Hebrews 10.23 in your notes this morning and look at it later yourself. It's just a great reminder. God is for us. So here's the basic story of Scripture. When you came to Jesus, all that baggage was wiped away. And He sees you through this lens of holiness. And He loves you. You've been rebirthed, church. You've got this brand new beginning that the people of the ancient days always wanted. It's been given to you freely. As grace and mercy means a brand new beginning. So you need hope. You need help. I need help. We don't deserve it. But He gives it freely, doesn't He? That's your, that's your God. I'm going to send you out this morning with this great blessing that comes from the book of Jude. And it was, it was written for the church. I, I just want to share it with you before you leave. Now to the one who is able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand. Without blemish. That's an amazing thought. You think you got baggage? God says you got no baggage. Without blemish before His glorious presence to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority before all time and now and for all eternity. And all God's people said, Oh, what a cool thought. Let's pray. Father, we've just declared this is truth. We've said amen together. We stand. Not as those who are defeated and destroyed and crushed, but as those who have a hope. Father, remind us of that as we go out these doors today because there's many who don't know this story. There's many that don't know they have this hope that it's available to them. Father, I pray that You would take this truth and translate it into boldness for our church. That when we come across friends and family members, or even strangers who are desperate, that we would be bold enough to share with them this truth that we know that there's forgiveness in You. Thank You, Father, for the truth that You've revealed this morning. I know that Your Word does things. And I'm looking forward to seeing what You do with this. We praise You in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.